Welcome to the sermon podcast for Timberlake Church in Lynchburg, Virginia. Our mission is to reach, feed, and release people to be the hands and feet of Jesus. To learn more, visit TimberlakeChurch.org. Now get ready for today's message, which we hope will be inspiring as well as challenging. Thanks for joining us. On a cold afternoon in January of 2009, U.S. Airways Flight 1549 took off from New York's LaGuardia Airport. Less than three minutes into the flight, while still ascending, the plane was struck by a flock of birds at an altitude of just 3,000 feet. Both engines were shut down. The airplane was now a glider, and the pilot of that aircraft was a man named Chesley Sullenberger, also known as Sully. How many of you have heard the name Sully Sullenberger before? Yeah, it's a familiar story, isn't it? Uh, here's what I want you to know today. This is a bad dude. Now, bad meaning good, right? Like, uh, this is a guy who cannot be rattled. Imagine the most chaotic, the most stressful, the most dangerous situation that you could ever find yourself in. This is the guy who you want on your team in that moment. I want to play for you this morning the cockpit audio. It's the audio recording of Sully's exchanges with the air traffic controller from LaGuardia Airport, and um, they're trying to solve the problem of how do you land a 200,000-pound aircraft gliding at 3,000 feet in a city full of tall buildings and come out with a good outcome. So the first thing you're going to hear is him describe the bird strike, and uh, he needs to return to the airport, and he realizes that's not possible, so he suggests Teterboro Airport in New Jersey, and then he realizes that is not possible, and I want you to listen to this. But I want you to notice, notice his economy of words. He only says what is absolutely necessary in order to get the message across. Notice the tone of his voice is very calm throughout. It's very steady. It's very much in control. Check this out. This is Sully in the air traffic control. 
And someone else who's listening, because I think at this point uh, he was out of, of radio range, um, and the other pilot said, yeah, I think he's going to land in the Hudson River. Uh, so it, Sully did an interview with Katie Couric a little while after this, and um, he said, um, the physiological reaction that I felt to this situation was strong. And I'm like, no kidding, bro. If that was me, I would have been freaking out, right? We're all going down. Right, but not Sully. He just, he kept it together. He was calm. He was collected. He was focused on the mission. Notice the tone of his voice in that radio exchange. The the tone with which he said, we're going to be in the Hudson is the same tone of voice that you and I use to order an ice cream over Mr. Goody's, right? Yeah, I'd like a small swirl cone with sprinkles, please. Yeah, we're going to land this airplane in the Hudson River. In the interview with Katie Couric, Sully said, I needed to touch down with the wings exactly level, with the nose slightly up at a descent rate that was survivable, and just above our minimum flying speed, but not below it. And I needed to make all those things happen simultaneously. And Katie Couric acknowledged just how overwhelming this task was. And she says, that's a big if. And Sully said, I was sure I could do it. Isn't that awesome? That is amazing to me. This water landing came to be known as the miracle on the Hudson. And experts, aviation experts, have called it the most successful ditching in aviation history. Sully and his crew were celebrated for their heroism because they saved the lives of all 155 passengers on that airplane. Praise the Lord indeed. Now, here's the million-dollar question for you, friends. If you are a passenger on that airplane on that day, aren't you thankful that God made Sully Sullenberger a pilot and not a pastor? (laughs) Thank you, Irish. (laughs) Right, right. He's the guy you want. And it turns out he had been studying and teaching emergency landings for years and years and years. He's the guy. He's the guy, and God called him to be a pilot. Brothers and sisters, welcome to week four of our series. It's called Faith in Real Life. During September, we're talking about this idea. What would it mean if all the disciples of Jesus, not just pastors and missionaries, but all the family of God believed their work is from God and did it for the glory of God and for the blessing of the people of God? Imagine what would happen if all of us believed that the work of pilots and teachers, of salespeople and of grandparents, that all of our work can be holy work for the worship of God and for the blessing of people. The vision that we're talking about, friends, is a good one, but let me suggest to you, it requires integration. It requires that you understand and believe that your faith and your life go together. That who you are on Sunday is the same person that you are the rest of the week. That your relationship with God guides not just the reading of the Bible and prayer, of course, but everything that you do. 
everything that you do. The vision is of integration. And I know you, you nod your head, you agree when I say faith is a way of life. You say, yes, right on. But don't miss how countercultural that idea is because the world will talk to you about something called work-life balance. You ever heard that phrase? Work-life balance. Can I be honest with you? I despise that phrase. That is the worst theology I ever heard. So that somehow your work is one thing, but, but real life, good life is something else? Are you kidding me? Work is part of life, isn't it? And you might have a good job that you love, or you might have a bad job that you hate. I don't know. But I'm telling you, work is part of life. And if you don't go into your work, whether, whatever your work is, if you don't go into it saying, Lord, how can I bless you in my work today, then you're missing an opportunity and we spend a lot of hours working, friends, don't we? We spend a lot of hours working. So don't neglect it. Work is that which God has called you to. We call it a vocation. Vocation, it means calling. It means what the Lord has given you to do for the, the service of your family and the blessing of your neighbors. And maybe it's going to the office or maybe you work at home or maybe it's paid or maybe it's unpaid or maybe it's school or maybe it's a career or maybe it's retirement. Whatever your work is, it is part of how God is pouring out the blessing of heaven into your life. But seeing it as a blessing requires eyes to see it. So that's kind of what we're talking about today is do you have the eyes to see the world the way God sees the world and to see your life the way God sees your life it requires integration. Now, there's a great quote by an author named Gregory Pierce, and I brought it for you this morning because I think he puts in a couple sentences exactly what we're trying to say today. It's kind of long, so just stick with me. If people cannot find spiritual meaning in their work, they are condemned to living a certain dual life, not connecting what they do on Sunday morning with what they do the rest of the week. We need to discover that daily life is spiritual and enables us to touch God in the world, not away from it. Such a spirituality says to us, your work is your prayer. Now, I don't know if you believe that or not, friends, but I'm inviting you to believe that, that this is a biblical theology of work of the spiritual life that we live out in the day-to-day. -day. The alternative is what the world will teach you, which is a dual life, and that is a divided life. And let me suggest to you that's probably also a miserable life because you're trying to be two different people. And why would you want to be someone different Monday through Saturday than who you are on Sunday? Now, the world has a word for that. What does the world call it when we act one way on Sunday and different the rest of the week? Hypocrisy, right? It is, and that's hypocrisy. And we have a word for it. It's called foolish, and it's called unnecessary because it doesn't have to be like that. You can be the same person each day of the week because who you are in Christ is what matters. Who you are in Christ is what matters, friends. So the question for today is can you see this? Can you see that your work is spiritual? You don't have to spiritualize it. You don't have to pretend. It's already spiritual, God has made it that way. So what I'm inviting you to do is to see it that way, the way God sees it. Imagine two bricklayers. Two bricklayers doing the same work, having the same ability, working on the same project, and you walk up to the first bricklayer and you say, pardon me, my friend, what are you doing? And that bricklayer says, I'm laying brick. 
And then you go to the second bricklayer, and you say, pardon me, what are you doing? And that bricklayer says, I'm building a cathedral. You see, same project, same work, same ability. One person has a vision for what God is doing through that work. I'm inviting you to use your holy imagination, friends, to see the world the way God does, to see your work the way God does. Now, one of the most important disciplines for us in seeing the world is reading the Scripture. Because when you read the Scripture, this is not just a matter of ingesting information, right? This is a matter of being trained in a certain way of thinking, in a certain way of living, in a certain way of seeing. Because the Bible is like putting on glasses, and the lenses that you put on are the grace of God and the power of God, to see the world through the lenses of the grace and the power of God. So we're going to do that today. We're going to read Scripture as, as a training mechanism to try to understand, to see the world the way God is. So we are in Exodus chapter 3. If you have your Bible, let me invite you to open it or your Bible app, or you can follow along on the screen as I read Exodus 3. We're starting here. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Oreb, the mountain of God. Okay, so right off the bat, you see Moses is working, and who's his boss? Uh, his father-in-law. How do you like that? Is that good? Would you like to work for your father-in-law? Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. Okay. Um, that's maybe a little tricky. That's not really the point of the story. Uh, the point of the story is Moses was a shepherd, right? He's an ordinary person doing ordinary work out in the field doing his job. And the story continues. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. Now this is the famous story of the burning bush. God appears to Moses in a bush, and Moses walked over to check it out to see what is going on here? This doesn't make any sense. Usually when a bush is on fire, it disintegrates because of the flames. But in this case, it wasn't. So Moses said, let me, let me see what this is about. Verse 4. God called to Moses from within the bush. Moses! Moses! And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Now, here's a question for you. What makes it holy ground? Because Moses is not in church, right? He's not in the temple. He's not in the sanctuary. What makes it holy ground? The presence of Almighty God is what makes it holy ground. Friends, understand this and get this today. Holiness is not a matter of the building that you are in. Holiness is not a matter of praying the right words or singing the right songs. Holiness is only ever a matter of your proximity to the living God. Amen. That is all it is. Are you close to God? That is what holiness is. And now Moses is in the presence of God, and so he will remove his shoes because this is holy ground. Consider that throughout salvation history, friends. Humans have been trying to capture God in buildings, right? <laughs> and meanwhile, God is always breaking out of buildings and meeting people out into the world. And so now God meets Moses, and now the Lord speaks to Moses, and the Lord says, I have seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. 
So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Do you see the problem for the Israelites? The problem is their slavery. Their problem is their taskmasters are ruthless and cruel, and they are working for Pharaoh. They are doing work that they did not choose. They are doing work that is not pleasant. They are doing work that has no dignity and no meaning because they are serving the ruthless and cruel Pharaoh. But in his mercy, God hears the cries of his children. And God responds and comes down to rescue and to save his people so that they may come and work for God instead. Notice, Moses, he goes from shepherding sheep. Now he's going to shepherd people. And he's going to deliver the children of God out of Egypt and on their way to the promised land. Not without reservations. Right? Moses has some hesitancy to hear God's call and to respond. He's not sure of himself. Moses said, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? How many of you have ever been called by God to do something and you were like, no, nah, I'm not sure about that? Anybody? Yeah, me, certainly. Who am I, Lord? Really? Maybe you got the wrong person. You know, I really don't know the Bible that well. I'm not really that holy I've got a lot of flaws, Lord. Maybe you forgot, you know, I'm just, maybe I'm not up to the task, not up to the challenge. Who am I? Who am I? Can I suggest to you, friends, that's the wrong question? Because it doesn't matter who I am. It only matters who the Lord is. And who is he? And he will tell you, I am. I am. Look at how the Lord responds to Moses. And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. God himself will be with Moses and the Israelites. The children of Israel who have been working for their slave masters will now get to work for the Lord. And that's good because the Lord is a merciful and kind master. He is a generous and loving supervisor and boss, and he will bring his workers into a land, a good land that is spacious and flowing with milk and with honey. And this is the sign that God's prophecy is coming true. When you, Moses, have brought the people out of Egypt, you will what? Worship me, God says, on this mountain. The key word here is worship. That is the sign of their freedom. That is the sign that God has delivered them. And what you cannot know by reading this, but if you look at the Hebrew, the word that is translated worship is the same word in the Hebrew that is used to mean cultivate the earth. It's used to mean till the soil. It's used to mean serve your master. In other words, it's used to mean work. The word that is translated worship is the same word that the Bible uses for Work. What does that tell you? Worship and work are the same in the Old Testament, in the Scripture. Worship is work and work is worship. In the ministry of the church, we see this. The rhythm of our Sunday morning worship, the prayers and, and the offering and the singing and, and the Scripture reading and the communion, we refer to this collectively as, do you know, the liturgy 
the liturgy, which comes from the Greek liturgia, which means literally the work of the people. Our worship is the work of our souls to bless God and to serve God and to bring blessing to our neighbors. Friends, what I'm saying to you today is work is worship. Your work is your worship, and in worship we work. There is an unmistakable connection between our labor and our adoration of the living God. Saving the lives of 155 people on an airplane is worship. Laying brick to build something beautiful for God is worship. Shepherding sheep is worship. Shepherding people is worship. For the people of God, our work is our worship. Now, this series has stirred up a number of conversations in my life. I hope it has in yours. Do when you hear the sermon, does it continue on into your life at all, like into Monday or Tuesday? Like, is there ever a Sunday afternoon conversation at the family dinner table? And like, hey, let's, let's talk about what the pastor said today, right? Okay, so I hope the sermon has more life than just these 25 minutes. Um, and, and in my life, it certainly does. And one of our Timberlake people said to me recently, he said, you know, um, I have, this is something God has been doing in my life, a transforming work of my understanding of who I am. And why I do the job that I do. You said, he said, uh, for decades I saw myself as, as a businessman, a leader, a guy who gets things done. And on Sundays I was a Christian, you know, but Monday through Friday and often Saturday I was a business executive. That's who I was. And my worth was determined based on uh, what I could perform and do for the organization that I led and how much money I could make and how effective I was at my job. And that was my identity, and that was what I focused on. What can I produce? But over time, you felt convicted by the Holy Spirit and to come to an understanding that who he was on Sunday morning, a child of God, is who he was. All the time, whether at home or at work or in church or wherever. And he began to take small steps to become more open about his faith. And so he would try to intentionally be the representative of Jesus to other people in his life. And so in the usual rhythm of daily interactions, when he's talking with people, he'd say, hey, how was your weekend? They would say, oh, you know, good, how was yours? And he would be chatting with people. And then he would just sort of add in and say, "Um, hey, how can I pray for you today? Right? And at first, people weren't sure maybe what to make of that. It was like, you know, who's this guy? But, but after a while, they began to accept that, and they would actually tell him things that were going on in their life, and he literally did pray for them, not just say it. You know, we all say, oh, I'll pray for you. But he literally did, did pray for them. And before long, I wonder if you can guess what happened. People started to come to him and say, I know you're a praying person. I've got something in my life. Will you please pray for me? Let me tell you about what's going on with someone I love. Let me tell you about what's going on in my heart today, and I need you to pray for me. You see how this works, friends? God sees us a certain way. And by God's grace, we begin to see ourselves that way. And if you live that way long enough, other people will also see you in that way. Last thought for today. Last thought for today. I want you to think with me about heaven. Think about what heaven is going to be like when we get there. 
Think about the, the, the initiation, the kind of the moment of, of resurrection and what Pastor Jesse last week reminded us in the New Testament is called the day. You know, the day that is approaching, that is the day of judgment, the day of resurrection, the day when Jesus comes back and says to the people of God, people of God, get up, and he raises the dead to new life for eternal life in God's kingdom. Do you know on that day in God's heaven, God will establish, the book of Revelation says, God will establish the new Jerusalem. Right, so if Jerusalem is sort of like the, the home of God on earth, you know, it's, this is the new Jerusalem. This is the, the, the recreated Jerusalem in heaven. According to the book of Revelation, there's one significant place on the earth that will not be carried over and taken into God's heaven. And I wonder if you know what that place is. In Revelation, it says there's one really important place that is not existing in heaven. Do you know what it is? It's the temple. The book of Revelation says there's no temple in heaven. And you read that and you're like, what? How can that be? I thought the temple was like the place, the most important place where we encounter God, right? Where we come to give our offerings and where we come to pray and, and, and spend time with the living God. But there's no temple in heaven? How can that possibly be? Gents, do you get it? <laughs> it's because in heaven you don't need to go to a place to worship God. Every place is worship. Everything that you do is worship. There's no need for a building, a sanctuary in heaven, because God is your sanctuary. Hello? The light and the love of Christ permeates every soul, every cell of your body. And everything in heaven is worship. Every meal, every conversation, every moment, every task, all of your play and all of your work, everything that you do is worship. So here's my proposal, friends. Uh, what if we practice that right now? What if the reason we gather on Sunday online or in this room, this is a chance to be restful and, and sit and rest in the Lord, that this is the chance to be refilled and refueled and to come to this table and to be filled with the goodness of God so that God would send us back out into the world again to live that things on earth would be as they are in heaven. And that is everything that you do, including your work, is the worship of the living God. Say amen if you can.